As Pastor Sean mentioned earlier, we are in the midst of a four-part series. We're in part three today, a series that we're calling The Lost Church. And uh, there's a little description of that series in the back of your bulletin. If you're new to Hope, you can catch up on what we're talking about here. Um, But in week one of this series, we talked about the fact that just trying to understand church is, is messy, trying to figure out, okay, what's the difference between what church was supposed to be according to Jesus and what it has become and which churches are living out like the, the full destiny of the church and, and how, what about our terminology? And so someone who has no context for what church is supposed to be about, it's so messy to crack into this thing and figure out, okay, at its core, what is church supposed to be? And so it's such a mess. And so back in week one of this series, we, we took a step back from the mess and instead of talking about church, we talked about God. Do you remember that a few weeks ago? We talked about God instead of church. We talked about God and what He wants more than anything else, the greatest desires of His heart. And this is true. Maybe this is something you haven't realized about God and never thought about God. But God possesses desires and passions. And chief among His passions, His greatest desire is for us. And what God wants is what's best for us. What does God want? Does He want us to sing Him songs? Does He want us to do us? Yeah, He wants lots of things. But more than anything else, He wants what's best for us. And among the things that are good for us, among the things that are best for us, the thing that God wants most of all is for us to go to heaven when we die. I know that seems like a simple kind of Sunday school, children's church kind of explanation of things, but think about it. I mean, that's the thing that He wants. He wants that relationship. He wants that. He's a good Father. He wants to be with us forever. And so where we landed with that is this truth and this reality that we need to cling on to and hold on to is that the only reason... The only reason the church exists is to give God what He wants. That's it. Last week we talked about, okay, well, how? How do we do that? And there's this term that Jesus used, this term discipleship. And this discipleship process, this is how we give Jesus what He wants. And there are those two prongs of discipleship. Or those, remember, about, remember this last week we talked about discipleship like a swinging pendulum? You know, one aspect of discipleship is reaching out to new people ministering to new people, people who don't yet know Jesus as their Savior. And then the pendulum swings back in this direction, and we need to minister to the people who already know Jesus as Savior and equip them for ministry and allow them to live into being a disciple. And then it swings back over into this direction so those disciples can then make more disciples. And so it's a pendulum that keeps swinging back and forth, back and forth, and we need to keep that momentum going. And that brings us to today. Part three of this series is called For the Sake of of the lost. And here's, here's where we are today. <clears throat> um, I've shared this with you several times in the past, but uh, I grew up going to church. I am a church kid, and uh, you know the deal how it works when you're a kid. You just do what your parents tell you. You don't really have a choice in the matter, and so that's how that worked. And as a kid, I went to vacation Bible school. Anybody else go to vacation Bible school as a kid? Yep, okay. Um, let me tell you something about vacation Bible school when I was a kid. I didn't like it, all right? I didn't like it. I didn't like it, all right? Didn't have a great time. I didn't really have friends that were there. And so it was fine, but I didn't like it. Then as an adult, an adult at, at my last church, um, I ran the vacation Bible school. And so it was a church like uh, 250-ish in attendance. But our vacation Bible school was ridiculous. There'd be like 150 kids. It would take 70-some volunteers to run this thing. It was a huge, ridiculous endeavor. And so as an adult, I really didn't like vacation Bibles. Can I admit that now? It's enough time has passed. I really didn't like it. But there was a period of time as a teenager that I actually liked vacation Bible school. As a teenager, we had some freedom. As a teenager, we went to vacation Bible school, and for about a half hour of that time, we had a little group of of, of youth that got together for a lesson. 
for about a half hour or so, half hour of the time. And so that lesson was taught by a wonderful guy. His name was Mr. Hutchinson. Some of you know this guy. Three of you in this room are his grandchildren. Can you guess which three? If you do, you'll win a prize. But, um, but I, I love him. I love him. And he was really good with youth, and he interacted well with us, and it was a fun time. And so that was like for a half hour. And then the rest of the time, we kind of do what we wanted. You know what I mean? We kind of helped out in the classrooms a little bit, you know, a little bit, brought in snacks or helped collect offering or stuff like that. And, and then we would congregate in this one little, I think it used to be a closet, but they made it into a classroom. We used to congregate in this one little room and hang out. And uh, one summer, it was when I was, I believe I was 13, I was 13 years old, and I invited uh, a friend to come with me to vacation Bible school. And so I told him, it's, you know, it's fun, and we hang out, and there's a little lesson, but it's not too much, and so we did that. And so he came, and this friend of mine was not a church kid, okay? And that's, I, it, that's how I grew up. Most of my friends were not churched at all, not Catholic, not Protestant, not attending service, not even Christmas and Easter. I mean, nada, nothing, Right? And that's what happens. If you grow up in an environment where your parents don't force you to go, you're not going to go by yourself. I mean, what's, what five-year-old's like, I'm going to church, mom and dad, all right. It just doesn't happen. And so he was not churched, and I had some friends that were Catholic, most that were not churched. And so I invited him to come with me. He's like, I don't know. I'm like, well, there are girls our age there. He's like, okay, I'll go. And so, <laughs> and so he comes with, and on one day in particular, I, I, I remember this. Some of the details I'm forgetting. It was a few years ago when I was 13. <clears throat> one day... We got finished working in a classroom, and uh, there was that lesson sheet, and at the bottom of the Bible story, there was what, what you might call the, the address of the Bible story. It's Matthew, I forget the chapter and the verses. But he said to me afterwards, he says, what, is this, what does this mean here? There's a name, it says Matthew, and then there's a number, and there's a colon, and there's a number, a dash, and a number. What, what is that? And my first thought was, as a church kid, like, how do you not know that? <laughs> That's how you find the challenge. You know, that's what I'm thinking inside. What I was able to vocalize was, well, listen, this, it's, you know, Matthew, that's the first word. That's, that's one of the books from the Bible. And so, wait, 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 wait. Books of the Bible? I thought the Bible was a book. Well, yeah, the Bible, it is a book, but it's made up of a bunch of other books. I didn't know how many at the time, but it was like a bunch of other books. It's 66, but I figured it out since then. I went to Bible college and everything, right? <clears throat> that's what I learned. Walk away with that. Anyway. I said, well, it's one of the books in the Bible, right? It's actually the first book of the New Testament, New Testament. I'm like, well, there's the Old Testament, New Testament, New Testament is everything from Jesus on. Wait a minute, the whole Bible isn't about Jesus? Well, that's a big theological question, isn't it? Or is it not? Whatever. But he had all these questions. I said, well, okay, so Matthew, that's how you find Matthew. And then the first number there, that's the chapter, and then the other numbers are the verses. And if you look in the Bible, you can see he never opened a Bible before. Why would he? Why would he? It's not from that experience. He came from that unchurched world. And at that moment, I realized something. Listen, this wasn't a major, big, groundbreaking conversation I had with this guy. It wasn't. I just realized something. I realized that we lived, we were neighbors. He lived on the same street as me, just down the road. We were neighbors. But we came from different worlds. We came from different worlds. You see, there is the world of the churched, the world of the churched, people who grew up in a church environment, People who as adults connected with the church and now they know the stuff and they learn the stuff and they've heard the gospel and they've heard stuff about Jesus and they've figured out over time how to work the Bible and how this thing works and they've figured out some stuff about church because they've been churched. And then over here you have the world of the unchurched. The unchurched, most of the time how this happens is because you just, you don't grow up in the church and so you're unchurched. 
And yes, it does happen that people who grow up unchurched can become church and can connect with church, but that's how they start is unchurched. And so I realized that there's two different worlds. There's the world of the churched, the world of the unchurched. And here's what I observed at 13 years old, and I still think it exists, and maybe you do too. I realized that there is this gap between the world of the churched and the world of the unchurched. Let me put this a different way. I'm going to use some terms that are different. They're not exactly synonymous, but let me, let me just put this idea out there in a different way. There is a gap that exists between the world of the saved. Can I use that term? The world of the saved, people who have said yes to Jesus, people who have heard the gospel, processed it, internalized it, and said, yes, I want Jesus to be. There's a difference between the world of the saved and the world of the, what do we say? We got a few Unsaved. Unsaved. Unsaved not saved, lost. I love that show. <laughs> but we're trying to talk about Jesus now. No, yeah, all right. <laughs> Thank you. You actually set me up. The world of the saved and the world of the unsaved, the not saved yet, or the world of the lost. Now, even that term, even that term lost, which is comp- completely appropriate, even that term has a connotation. Wasn't that kind of like you're putting somebody down? But it's not. It doesn't mean that. But there is a difference between the world of the saved and the world of the lost. There is a gap between these worlds. And the question is, how do we close this gap? How do we close this gap? Now listen, those of you who have read some of the Bible and you've read some of the New Testament and you've heard a few things and you've figured out a few things about church, one of the things that we're told by, by Peter, one of the early disciples, one of the first disciples, is that we have to be, we're supposed to be a holy people. We're supposed to be set apart. We're supposed to be different. The world of the saved is supposed to look different from the world of the lost, but at the same time, we're not supposed to be kept separate. Jesus says we're like a light on a hill. We've got to shine. You can't hide that light under a basket. There's a song about that that kids used to sing back in the 80s. You can't hide. You have to shine the light so the people over here can see that light. And if we're so far apart, they can't even see the light. There is a gap between the churched and the unchurched. There is a gap between the saved and the unsaved, and we need, listen, it's not optional, we need to close the gap so that we can make the gospel of Jesus Christ accessible, not just accessible, but easily accessible to the people who live in this world, the world of the unchurched, the world of lost. We need to close that gap And in my early 20s, man, oh, man, I came up with an idea. I came up with an idea, and I thought, this is genius. Do you ever have an idea like that? You're like, oh, man, this is a great idea. And then you realize, oh, it's already out there. Someone's already done it. Story of my life. I think I have all these great ideas. I don't. It's already been done. But I had this idea. I'm like, what if there was a church? What if there was a local church, or like maybe every local church? What if local churches directed all of their efforts, all their ministry and their budget money and their program, what if they directed it all over here to the world of the unchurched? What if they focused their ministry efforts on the lost instead of catering to the people who are already saved, instead of just catering to the church? What if there was a church that catered, really specifically, catered to the lost? Not just like, maybe you've heard some terminology thrown around, like seeker-sensitive. Have you heard that? It's like, well, people are seeking, and let's be sensitive to that, or seeker-friendly. I'm not talking about friendly. I'm not talking about sensitive. I mean seeker-oriented, seeker-focused. What if such a church existed? Wouldn't that that get the job done? Wouldn't that be great? And of course, 
that's happening. That has happened. That's been happening for a long time. I just, I didn't grow up in that context, so I didn't know about that. Church is focused on the lost. In the 70s and early 80s, there were big churches that got, that got national attention because of their size and because the pastors were writing books and leading conferences, churches like Willow Creek Church just outside of Chicago, and then there was Saddleback Church in Orange County, California, and these mega church situations. And again, they're getting national attention just because of the scale. But churches like that that were specifically focused towards this people group, reaching the lost, ministering to the lost, speaking, listen, speaking the language of the lost, risking over-explaining Bible passages because we're not assuming that everybody already knows, focused on the lost. And so that's just two examples, and there were plenty of churches like, like ours that live kind of under the radar here. We're not getting national attention, and, and we're never going to, right? But plenty of churches like this that are focused on that. And so you had that church, you had Saddleback, you had Willow Creek, and the subsequent generation, you had Nerf, <laughs> Nerf? You had a Nerf church, that'd be fun. What if we just had Nerf Wars? Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, North, I got a cold, North Point Church that was founded by Andy Stanley, the son of Charles Stanley. And so, have I mentioned Andy to you before? A few times. Listen, I love, it. I love this guy. I've never met him, but he's been influential. I've read his stuff. I've listened to his preaching. And so, he's got this church. He, he just followed in their footsteps, followed in the footsteps of guys like Rick Warren and said, we're going to do this thing. In fact, I don't remember the word specifically, but they have a vision statement for that church. Like, we're going to be a church that unchurched people love. What a great idea to be the church that unchurched people love and want to be a part of and want to connect with. Wow, that's a great idea. We should have just stole that vision statement. That was good. And so there's this idea. It's been around, but there's some tension in this idea. There's a question that comes up. So, okay, okay. This might sound like a decent idea in theory, but if you're going to direct everything, all of your ministry efforts all toward the lost. If it's all for the sake of the lost, what about this group of people over here? How are you ministering to the Christians? How are you ministering to the church, to the saved? That question has an answer. But first, let's take a look at today's Bible reading. Let's look at that. We'll start to find our answer here in Luke 15. If you have a Bible with you, you can open to Luke 15. We're actually going to start looking at verse 1. It picks up with verse 3 in your bulletin there. But verse 1 really sets the stage for what's going on here in Luke 15. Verse 1 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Okay? And so here's, Jesus has an audience, people that are listening to him speak. And the people who showed up, the people that he's connecting with, the people that he's spending time with, these are sinners. And it's, it's designated, not just average sinners, but like even tax collectors who were especially loathed. I mean, tax collectors were Jewish people who were betraying their own kind, betraying their fellow Jews, and working for the Roman government. Like that's the lowest of the low, right? Now, when you see that term, sinners, when you see that term sinners appear in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... That term is referring to a very specific group of people. It's referring to Jews, to children of Israel. These were Jewish people who had given up on the religious system of Judaism. They'd given up on going to temple. They'd given up on the sacrifices. They said, I don't see the point in that. You know, my grandpa used to do that, but I'm not doing it. My parents didn't do it, so I'm not doing it. They didn't see the point of all this religious stuff. 
And so when you see that term sinners in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, just, just note that's it's Jewish people that had given up on the God of Judaism, given up on their God. And so those are the people that Jesus is spending time with. In fact, Jesus was called a friend of sinners. That might sound really sweet to us, but it was an insult at the time. Look at this friend of sinners. Look at this guy. And so that's who shows up. That's who Jesus, that's who he's seeking, not not who shows up, that's who he's seeking out. Let's be clear here. That's who he's seeking out, speaking to a group of people, tax collectors, sinners. Verse 2, but the Pharisees, bum, 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 Pharisee is often painted as the bad guy in the gospel. Well, guess what? They weren't all bad. You know, there were some Pharisees that listened to Jesus, some that kind of wrestled with what to do with Jesus. The majority rejected Jesus, but even the ones that rejected him, some of them became part of the first church. So, listen, we want to paint pictures here. We want to say, this guy's bad, this guy's good. It doesn't work that way. It's sloppy. It's messy. It's not how life works. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. Oh, muttering. Could we stop muttering, by the way? Can we just stop that, like, you know, in church settings? Let's just stop muttering. Well, I don't think, do we mutter here? We don't mutter here. We're not mutters. We don't complain. I don't know what they're doing over there. You know, let's just stop the muttering. Sermon for another day. Stop the muttering. <clears throat> they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Can you even believe it? I mean, now he's not just spending time with them. He's having what looks like fellowship. I mean, to sit down and share a meal, that meant something then. I guess it can still mean something now, but it was, much, it was a big deal back then. You're going to sit down, and you're going to pass food around with these unclean sinners? And so they took issue with that. And so now it started with, you had the group of sinners, and then you have the group of you know, righteous people, at least they thought they were righteous, the people who valued God's law people who valued trying to do things God's way and observing the, the festivals and all this. You had people who were trying to follow God and people who had given up on God. You had the righteous and the sinners. Mixed audience, okay? That's another issue that's been brought up from time to time and like, you know, among pastors and preachers. How do you talk to a mixed audience? Well, listen to what Jesus did. He talked to both of them. So as a mixed audience there, people who were objecting to what he was doing, people that were receiving what he was doing, and he tells some stories that were so pointed directly at his audience have you ever been in an experience like that where you've heard a sermon like, I think he's talking to me. You just feel it and you just feel yourself shrinking This he's talking to me. He's talking specifically to these people. And he tells them some stories. They're called parables. These stories Jesus told to make a point, to help people understand. He was communicating a message through these stories. Verse 3. So he's responding to the grumbling. Here's what, here's what it says. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Make a note of this. The answer to that question is no. I mean, if there were shepherds in that group, and I'm not sure that there were, but if you're literally a shepherd and you literally have 100 sheep and one runs off, you still have 99. Would you risk losing some of those 99 in open country or open wilderness or open pasture to go after the one that was lost? This is counterintuitive. Listen, this is intentionally, Jesus knows what he's doing. It's intentionally counterintuitive. 
And so the way Jesus puts it out there is, wouldn't you go after the one that's lost? And so Jesus is setting up something here by this counterintuitive statement. But what he's about to share with us, this, this lesson, this, the meaning behind this is counterintuitive to what we would think we should be about. He sets this idea up, and of course, he's not talking about literal sheep and literal shepherds. So why don't you go do that? Why don't you leave the 99 and go after the one that was lost? Verse 5, and when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulder and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, we're about to have a party, guys, because guess what? He says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you, and here's the point, short parable makes a point. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Listen, y'all over here in this world, that's great. You, keep, you do you, all right? You keep being saved. You keep being righteous. If you really are righteous, fantastic. That's wonderful. And Jesus loves you if you're over here. But it seems to me that Jesus has a priority. And his priority is reaching out to the lost. Now, I'm not saying Jesus loves some people more than others. No, He loves us all. He loves all people, people that are in worship services right here this morning, people who are not, people who call themselves Christians and people who don't, people who align themselves with some kind of faith system and some who don't. He loves all people. But it seems to me that as the good shepherd, Christ takes on this role of leaving the 99 behind and pursuing the one that's lost, even though that's counterintuitive. Here's what I think about this parable. I think it makes so much more sense to us now than it did to His original audience. Because there's some questions that come up about, okay, Jesus uses this term righteous. Were the Pharisees really righteous? Uh, maybe some were, maybe some. I don't know. I don't know their hearts. I don't know. But this parable makes so much more sense in the context of church. And Jesus is setting up this idea Instead of being so, okay, one's gone, but that's fine. Still got 99. Let me cater to the 99, the righteous, the saved, the church. Let me cater to them instead of worrying about the one that's lost. No, Jesus says, no, his priority is to go after the unchurched, the unsaved, the lost. That's his priority. That's what he's about. I heard a uh, pastor preach a message a long time ago, and he was trying to break down Christ's calendar and how he spent his time and where he spent his time, and really, most importantly, who he spent his time with. And you look at the different types, types of interactions that Jesus has throughout the Gospels. He spends a big old chunk of his time with people who are disabled, who are sick, who need to be healed. He spends a little bit of his time with the religious leaders of his day, has some interaction with them, some very pointed and uh, difficult interactions with them. He spends a whole lot of time with that group of people called sinners, or what we would translate into this day and age as unchurched or unsaved. He spends a whole lot of time with sinners. But if you track Jesus in His time and who we spent the most time with, who we spent most of His life with, He spent the biggest chunk of His life with His disciples, with those who were coming to understand Him as their Savior, who were coming to understand that this is the Son of God. He spent the biggest chunk of His life with His disciples. Now, that may seem a little bit contradictory. Jesus, if, if, this, is, if this people group over here, if the lost, if this is who you're after, then why are you spending all this time with, with the saved? Why are you spending all this time with your disciples? And the answer is simple. 
He poured into those men, those original disciples. He poured into them, and He taught them for the sake of the lost. And He spent time with the lost, teaching them the truth for the sake of the lost, so that some of them would understand that He really was and is the Messiah, the Son of God, and find salvation in Him. And then He spent time with His disciples, pouring into them, equipping them, training them up so that they could go and reach out to the lost. It's the same thing that we talked about last week. It's, not a, it's nothing new. I didn't, I didn't figure this out. I haven't figured out. I've come up with no new ideas. All my new ideas have already been done. It's the same thing. This discipleship pendulum that swings back and forth. And Jesus spends time with the lost, and he spends time with the saved, pouring into them. And guess what? It turns out Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Because after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, after the ascension, that group of guys, they went out, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, they talked to this group of people over here and shared the truth of the gospel with them and shared the message of Jesus and salvation in Jesus Christ with them. And thousands upon thousands, and one day, the day of Pentecost, thousands became part of that first church. And that would not have happened if Jesus had not poured in to these guys over here and poured himself out and taught them and instructed them. But everything Jesus did, whichever people group he was speaking to, it was all for the sake of the lost. All for the sake of the lost. We have a, uh, we have a vision statement as a church. No, we didn't steal Andy Stanley's. That would have been fine, but we didn't. And lots of local churches, they have, you know, some churches have mission statements, some have vision statements. Sometimes the mission statement is a big, long, like, two-page thing, and you can have a statement, whatever it is. There are no rules. We're making all this stuff up. But we have a vision statement. We call it a vision statement because we believe this is God's vision for our church. And the front half of our vision statement is on your bulletin every single Sunday. And the second half of the vision statement is a secret. And we only talk about it when we have really attractive people in the audience. And so we're going to talk about it today. The first half is this, and this is what I believe about vision statements, that if you're going to have one, it's got to mean something. A good vision statement raises good questions that all have good answers, right? You don't need to write that down, but you could if you're trying to come up with a vision statement for something. I don't know. But a good vision statement raises good questions that all have good answers. And I hope that's what we have here. And that first half, what does it say? Engaging in the mission of engaging in the mission of God. And so that first half of the statement assumes some things. I mean, we say that there is a God, and if someone asks, well, who is your God? We say the God of the Bible is the God that we are serving. It also assumes that God is on a mission, which is that. That's exactly what we believe. What do you mean engaging in the mission of God? Well, we believe that God is not passive. He's not sitting up in heaven in some kind of throne. So he is active in this world, and he is on a mission. Well, what is his mission? His mission is specifically to save the lost. That's his mission. And so we are engaging in that. The idea is that we are taking an active role in being a part of what God wants to see accomplished in this world. We're engaging in the mission of God. Here's the second part. The secret part. Engaging in the mission of God for the sake of the lost. Engaging in the mission of God for the sake of the lost. I used to teach children's church and we used to say things together. Could we do that today? Our vision statement is engaging in the mission of God for the sake of... You got it. For the sake of the lost. Now you may have noticed 
that the second half of that vision statement is 100% redundant. It's redundant because the first half, first half covers it. First half covers it, engaging in the mission of God. Well, his mission is to reach the lost. The second part of that vision statement, as redundant as it is, is just serves as a reminder to ourselves that what we do is not for our own sake, that what we do as a church is not for our own sake. It's for the sake of the lost. And this is how so many of our churches become lost, is because they forget and they start catering to the Christians, catering to the saved. And what happens when you do that? When, you, when you're a church that exists for your own sake, you eventually run out of people because you're not, you're not reaching out. And that's what's happened to so many of our churches in this area. I'm not, this, is not, this is just a fact. I'm not being judgmental. You've seen it. You know. It's because we forget that we're supposed to exist not for our own sake, but for the sake of the lost. I had a professor at Liberty... I thought I'd get one person clapping for that. We had a professor, a professor at Liberty who used to say this. He used to say, the, the church is not a club. The church is not a club. But if it were a club, it would be the only club that exists for the sake of its non-members. That's who we are. We're not catering to ourselves. We exist for the sake of our non-members. The question for you question for me, the question for us is this. Will we, will we take on this, this counterintuitive attitude that Jesus had, that He's going to leave the 99 and focus on the one that's lost? Are we going to be shepherds like that? Or are we just going to stay over here in this world, the world of church, and just be comfortable doing some kind of churchy club thing? I, I know my answer to that question, and I suspect that I know yours too. We're not satisfied to just hang out here in the world of church. There's no point. If, if a church's ministry and if all the, the instruction that a church does in building up its Christians, building up its believers, if it's missing the piece that says, well, wait a minute, you got to go out and share this with other people, if it's missing that piece, it's missing the whole point. It has to be focused on the lost. It has to be. We have to do what we do for the sake of the lost. If you have Matthew 15 still open... Jesus continues to speak to the same group of people, very pointed, speaking to his audience. And the last, he shares a couple more parables, but the last parable that he shares, this last story that he tells is my favorite parable. It's the parable of the lost son, sometimes called the parable of the, parable of the prodigal son. And it's a story about a father and two sons. And I'm going to give away some of the ending for you. The father in this story represents God himself, and the two sons represent two different groups of people. You've got the younger son, who in Jesus' day, I guess you could say represented a sinner, or in our modern day and age, the age of the church, you could say he represents someone who was lost. And then you have the older brother, and the older brother, the older son to the father, he represents, in Jesus' day, you could say he represents the righteous, or in our day and age, the age of the church, you could say he represents someone who is saved. And so you've got the father and two sons, one lost, one saved, one who wants to reject and one who wants to accept. And so the story unfolds in this way. It's a parable. The story unfolds in this way. The younger son says to the father, I want your money and I want it now. The younger son says to the father, listen, we all know how this works. One day... 
You're going to die, and when that day comes around, all your stuff's going to be sold, and I'm going to get my share of the money. Can we just expedite this process? Can I get that money now? Because guess what's up, Dad? I don't want to live under your roof anymore, and I don't want to have to look at your face anymore. I want out. I don't want to live under your roof. I don't want to live according to your rules. Can you just, I know this has never been done before, but can you just give me my money now because I want to go? Listen, let me be frank, Dad. I'd rather you were dead and I was rich. Fathers, how would you respond to that? And so here we see Father God behaving very counterintuitively. And the Father says to the Son, okay, all right, I'll give you your share now. And back in those days, a person's wealth was tied up in their property, tied up in their land, and so this was a big deal. He didn't just write him a check. He had to sell off his stuff, and so he could give that younger son the money. Can you, this is totally counter. Why would he do this? Gives him the money. The younger son says, great. I no longer have a relationship with the father. Fantastic. I didn't want one anyway, but I've got some stuff. I've got the blessings. I've got the stuff, and I'm going to go out. I'm going to do my thing, and he does do his thing. Scripture says he spends it on wild living, all right? Revelry, getting drunk, having parties, paying for women. Are the kids downstairs? Most of them are. I'll leave it at that. And guess what? All that wealth, if you're not investing in it, it just it ran out. And there was a time of famine in the land. The economy took a downturn. And so here's this guy who's left with nothing. What's he supposed to do? Go back to the father? I don't think so. He made a pretty big deal about leaving the father in the first place. So he's like, okay, I guess I'll get a job. He gets this job working, uh, taking care of pigs, which was disgusting. <laughs> I mean, especially for a Jewish person, pigs were unclean animals. And here's this Jewish man working, feeding pigs, and he's looking down at the pig slop saying, oh, that looks good. I could really, I could eat that right now. I could eat that. And in that moment, he comes to his senses, and he realizes something. He realizes he has sinned. He realizes the error of his ways. And he says this to himself. He's like, listen, it would be better just to be a servant at my own father's house. And he knows, he knows the truth. He knows I am not worthy to be called a son of my father anymore. But I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell him I'm sorry. And I'm going to say, Dad, I don't deserve to be your son, but would you consider hiring me on as one of your servants? This is called repentance. This is what repentance looks like, a changed heart. I realize the error of my ways. I realize how I'm living is wrong, and I'm going back to the Father. And so he makes the journey back. And I assume he's rehearsing this speech all along the way. Dad, I'm not, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son, but if you would, if you would consider giving me a job and employing me as one of your servants, and just rehearsing that as well. What's, what's he going to say when I get there? Oh, man. Can you imagine? What's this dad going to say? Well, 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 look who's back. What's the father going to say? Here's what we find out in the story. While this younger brother, while this younger son is a, a distance away from the house, the father sees him. How? How did the father even see him? Maybe because he was looking for him. Oh, this is our God, okay? Maybe because he's standing out on his porch just waiting for this day. So he sees him. And you know what he does? He closes the gap. He runs toward that lost son. He closes that gap, makes himself easily accessible to the son. He's not going to stand there and wait. You come to me. 
And let's hear what you have. Nope. That's not God. That's not our God. He runs, closes the gap, makes himself accessible to that lost son. And if you read this parable in Luke 15, what you realize is this. The son, he doesn't even finish his apology. He gets the first half of it out, and he can't speak because the father is embracing him and hugging him. And you got to realize in that culture, just, you know, men did not run in that culture, especially dignified men. He had to pick up his robes and run down. You know, this was, this was a scene. This is God. He embraces him, puts a robe on him, says, we have got to celebrate. My lost son is now found. You were as good as dead, but now you're alive. What a wonderful story. But it doesn't end there. Because then the older brother shows up. How would you feel if you were the older brother? He says, Dad, what? You're going to have a party for this guy? Do you realize what he did with your money? Do you know how he's been living the past few years? You're going to throw a party for him. I can't even have a few friends over. You can't even slaughter a little calf for me, but you're doing this? Can you understand that attitude? I, I can. I mean, especially because here we go. Now, he had already used up all of his inheritance. So whatever the father was spending now was coming out of the older son's pocket, essentially. We're going to sell it. You're going to use my money? Well, one day it'll be my money. You're going to use that and throw a party for this guy? And I have served you, and I've been here. What does the father say? Son, you have always been with me, and everything I have is yours. But this, <laughs> this brother of yours was lost, and now he's found. Won't you come in and celebrate with us? And that's how the story ends, on this cliffhanger. And I imagine... I'm not sure. I wasn't there. But I imagine when Jesus told this story, there was silence because everybody knew the point. Will you come and join? Jesus speaks to those Pharisees, those older brother types. Will you come and celebrate what's happening? Jesus shares the same question with us today. All of us older brother types in the room, all of us saved people, all of us church people, will you come and celebrate and be a part of seeking after the lost? And rejoice when they are found, even if it means sacrificing something, because he had to sacrifice. Even if it means sacrifice, will you celebrate that? What's your answer? What's our answer to that question? If we're not going to be about this, what's the point? I believe that our answer is a big fat yes. Let's go in and celebrate. Let's be a part of this party. Let's not sit back and be bitter. Well, I don't know what they're doing over there. I mean, they're ministering to the lost people and speaking their language, and I don't know, we're a Christian club over here. We're doing things right. No, 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 no. We can't have the older brother attitude. We have to go in and celebrate, not just celebrate, but take an active part in seeking after and reaching the lost. This is our mission, engaging in the mission of God for the sake of the lost. This is who we are. This is who we need to be. And I believe, guys, and I hope you agree, I believe that we're starting to see the fruit of this. It's starting to work that we are reaching new people, that we are sharing this message. And as we move forward, this is so important. We can't lose sight of this. Whatever we do as a church, it needs to be done for the sake of the lost. Let's pray on that. Father God, you are...
You are a good, good father. You're the father that closes the gap. You're the father that runs after us and embraces us. You're the father that's, that's quick to forgive, filled with compassion, abundant in love and forgiveness. That's who you are. Oh, but it's not who we are. We're human beings. We're faulty. We, have, we get jealous. We, get, we lose focus, God. So, Father God, I ask that you would give each one of us, give us new hearts. Give us hearts that, that beat in rhythm with yours. Let us value what you value. And let us be willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to reach out for the lost so that more and more people would find salvation in you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.